This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're going to look at a prophecy that the prophet Zechariah makes in Zechariah 13 and verse 1 about the day that the fountain was opened. And in this prophecy, the Bible says this, In that day there shall be a fountain opened to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament part of the Bible, there are many different Old Testament prophecies that talk about Jesus Christ, and this is one of them that talks about the coming kingdom, the coming Messiah, the coming salvation that would come one day. And I want to talk to you tonight about that day when the fountain was opened, that fountain of salvation, of eternal life from God. It's the most important day in the history of mankind when Jesus Christ gave his all to become that sacrifice for sin for you and for me. And so as we look at this particular day that Zechariah prophesied about, I want us to remember that there was a reason that Jesus was sent to earth. And that reason was that this world is a world that it was in need of a Savior and still is. You know, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 tells us that. And that sin traces all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. They committed that first sin there in the garden. And all humankind since have used our free will, unfortunately, to rebel against God. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to know the reason that Jesus was sent down to this earth was to be a savior for a world that needed him. That needed a savior. Isaiah 59 and verse 2, you might remember that passage tells us, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. The reality is I want to ask you to look in your own life tonight and consider whether or not you have ever done anything that you know to be wrong. Have you ever done anything that you know was against the will of God? Because if you have, you have committed sin. 1 John 3 verse 4 tells us that sin is the transgression of of God's law. And the reality is all of us have done that. There are no perfect people walking around. In fact, there have only there's only been one perfect person to live, and that was Jesus Christ. And he did that on purpose so that his perfection could be passed on to us. You know, Jesus came to bring that salvation to mankind. And we think about the story of Jesus as to give us a little context as we enter into this last day, that day that the fountain of salvation was opened. I want you to remember some things about Jesus. Jesus was sent down and was born of a virgin. And this was to be a sign that this was the Messiah. This was the king. This was the savior that would bring salvation to all of mankind. He showed wisdom beyond his years at the age of 12, Luke tells us, as he stayed behind in Jerusalem as his parents headed back home. And he's sitting there in the temple with the doctors of the law, these educated men, and they're asking him questions and he's answering and he's telling them things that are amazing and astonishing them. And he said when his parents finally found him, if you remember, and they're they're as any parents would, I'm sure going, where have you been? What have you been doing? And at 12 years old, Jesus looks at him and goes, don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? And at 12 years old, he showed that he was that coming Messiah, that coming Savior. At the age of 30, he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he began his ministry. And at that time of his baptism, God spoke from the heavens and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
And from that point on, Jesus began teaching. He began doing miracles. He began telling people about this kingdom that he was going to establish that would bring salvation to all mankind. And he taught that for three years. He taught a new moral standard. He taught about repentance and submission to God. He claimed to be the son of God and everything that he did backed up his claim. And he taught with authority and the people that listened to him, the crowds loved it and they ate it up. But the Jewish leaders, those that were in power at that time were threatened by him. And so though the crowds loved him and realized that this was someone that they should be listening to, those Jewish leaders began to look for a way to be rid of him. And so we look at Luke 19, verse 47 and 48. says, And he, he, Jesus, taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Now I want you to think about these Jewish leaders. They're in a position of authority and power within the Jewish religion. And here comes a guy that all of these crowds are beginning to flock to and listen to and want to hear what he has to say. And for three years, Jesus' following grows and is great, and his reputation spreads all over the land. And so here's people in a position of power that are threatened by this guy that is coming and teaching something different. And they think that if he ends up being, becoming something or a leader to these people, that he's going to change the entire Jewish religion. And in fact, he did. But they're threatened by that. They're threatened by the loss of their authority and their power. I think they're also jealous of him. Because probably they didn't receive the same kind of attention and flocking and following that these folks gave to Jesus. Because they recognized that Jesus was something special. And so these Jewish leaders began to seek a way to destroy him. In Mark chapter 8 verse 31 and 32, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of God must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. You know, we think about this passage. And I just want us to recognize that Jesus knew what was coming and was prepared for it. You know, these Jewish leaders were jealous of him. They were threatened by his authority. They were looking for a way to destroy him. Jesus didn't not know that. He knew what was coming. And he was teaching his disciples that he's going to be rejected. And he's going to be killed. And then after three days, he's going to rise again. And you know, Peter rebukes him. The disciples that are there listening to him are going, no, that's not what we want. We, we are followers of you. We're listening to you. We're training under you. We don't want you to be rejected and be killed. But he's trying to tell them, look, it's coming. Jesus was prepared to die. And I think we need to recognize that no one truly had the power to put Jesus to death. Jesus was the son of God. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels as the song we sing says, right? Jesus could have stopped it at any moment. Jesus could have done this a lot of ways, but Jesus allowed himself to be taken and put to death because he knew that we needed him too. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, he says this. He said, therefore doth my father love me not, not because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. Pilate did not crucify Jesus. The Romans did not put Jesus to death. The Jews did not put Jesus to death. Jesus gave himself and his life for you and for me to become that savior. And I think we need to recognize that and remember that as we look at this last day where Jesus' life is laid down. In Matthew chapter 26, 14 through 16, these Jewish leaders that are trying to find a way to betray and put Jesus to death, they figure out how. 
It says, then one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, what will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot was one of Jesus' followers for three years. He saw Jesus' miracles. He heard Jesus' teaching. He was there with him all along through that ministry. You know, as the New Testament writers are writing years later, they can give us a perspective looking back that they wouldn't have had at the time. And John actually does this regarding Judas. John tells us that Judas was the guy that held the bag of money for the group. And as Jesus and his disciples went about ministering, Judas was the guy, and that Judas was a thief. He had a problem with greed, with love of money. And so from time to time, as he's the guy carrying the bag of money for the group, he would dip his hand into that bag, and he'd put some in his own pocket. That was Judas. And so now we have a situation where the chief priests are looking for an opportunity to destroy Jesus, and Judas goes, I can tell you how. You can pay me, and I'll lead you right to him. Now, I don't know what Judas's motivation is. Judas saw a lot of amazing things. He saw a lot of great miracles that Jesus has performed. Judas may have thought he could make a quick 30 pieces of silver and they're not gonna touch Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus after all, the guy who walks on water. But nevertheless, he says, I'll agree to lead you to Jesus and to betray him for that 30 pieces of silver. And it's interesting to me that that is the problem of sin that Judas had and it's the very problem that led him, that greed, ultimately to betray the son of God. And so he tells them, I'll look for an opportunity to betray him. In John chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, we see a scene here that we call the Last Supper. And this is the night before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 4 of John 13, He riseth from supper, Jesus does, laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Now, a few days before this, if you remember, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the people are putting palm branches down before him and they're crying Hosanna to the highest and they're praising him and honoring him. And it gets to this point that he is a day removed from his crucifixion and he's gathered there in this upper room at this last supper and before he gets down and washes the disciples' feet, if you'll recall, he institutes the communion, the Lord's Supper that we still do and partake of each first day of the week. And then he begins to get down on his hands and knees and wash the disciples' feet, all of them, including Judas. Now, we already talked about the fact that Jesus knew what was coming. He was prepared to die. He said, I'm laying my life down. And yet here is this man, this son of God, who is looking across the table at a man who he knew was gonna betray him. He knew was gonna lead to his death. And he gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes his feet. Now that to me is contrary to human nature. That's contrary to everything I think I would have instinct to do towards the person that I know was about to lead to my death. But that shows us that Jesus was not human. He was not just human. He was God made flesh. He was the son of God. And he did this as an example for the disciples, an example of service that lasts until today and shows us a great example of the type of people that we should be. In John 13, 21, it says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. So here they are still at this last supper. He's washed their feet. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. And then he says, One of you that are here are going to betray me. And the disciples start looking one to another going, Who in the world is he talking about? 
It can't be me, right? Is it you? Is it me? The Bible tells us that Peter nudges John. John is next to Jesus. And Peter asks, you know, essentially asks John to ask Jesus who it was that was going to betray him. So John asks, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says this. Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop. A sop is a morsel of bread. It says, when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. And then said Jesus unto him, that thou doest, do quickly. Now, Judas had already agreed, remember, with the, with the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, to betray Jesus. He was just looking for that opportunity. And so now, after Jesus has washed his feet, Judas is looking at who he knows to be the Son of God, the Messiah, who looks at him and he says, or looks at the group and says, whoever I give this morsel of bread to, that's the one, and he hands it to Judas. Imagine being Judas in that situation. And then Jesus, this man that you've already agreed to betray, looks at you and he says, whatever you're going to do, go do it. And you know that he knows what you're about to do. Now, some people say, they look at this, this phrase that Satan entered into him, and they say that Satan possessed Judas without his control. But I don't believe that that is what God allows Satan to do. I think even the, the possessions that we see in the New Testament, I don't think were forced. I think they were people that allowed that possession to take place. And you know, Satan can't con- take control of us today. Satan can't force his way in, but Satan can get into our heart through sin, and that's what he did with Judas. Judas had a problem with greed, with the love of money, and that's how he let Satan in. And so Judas goes to lead the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers to Jesus. Now, at this point, Jesus and the other disciples, they leave and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane that we just sang about in that last song. And this was a garden that was at the base of the Mount of Olives. And this was a place where Jesus spent a lot of time during his life. And in Luke 22, 41 and 42, it says, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and he kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So Jesus leaves the disciples and he goes and he prays to God alone. And this prayer, he prays three different times. Father, if you're willing, let this cup pass from me. And this is him essentially saying, if there's any other way that we can do this, if there's any other way that humankind can be saved, let's do that. Let's do it a different way because I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours, Lord. He says, even though I don't want to go through it, and I'm asking you, if there's any other way, let's do it a different way. He says, I'll do what you want me to do. And to me, this shows us that while he was God made flesh, he was also a human being. And he recognized the pain and the turmoil that he was about to go through. But he kept his focus on the will of God. Luke tells us in verse 44, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus is in agony. Has he been beaten yet? Has he had a stripe laid upon his back yet? No. He has not been physically touched to this point, and yet he is in agony. This was not a physical agony. This was a mental agony, an emotional agony, an anguish, knowing what was about to come. And Luke says he was sweating so profusely, it was like great drops of blood were falling to the ground. And you know, some people read this, and this very well may be the case, but they'll say this is just an illustration to show us how profusely he was sweating. But it is interesting to me that there is a medical condition that's called hematidrosis, where this actually takes place. And during extreme emotional or physical distress, the capillaries that feed the sweat glands will actually burst. 
and mixed in with the sweat as it comes out will be blood. It's also interesting to me that the gospel writer that records this happening is Luke, who was a physician. So whether or not that's true, whether it's just very profuse sweating, or he was literally sweating blood, regardless, we see that emotional and mental agony and anguish that Jesus is going through knowing what's coming. In Matthew 26, verse 47, it says, And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that had betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Jesus is in this garden and he is finished praying and then he sees his friend, his disciple of three years coming into that garden with the Jewish leaders behind him and Roman soldiers trailing them. And then this friend of three years walks up to him and says, hail master and kisses him. Now a kiss is a sign of friendship. It is a sign of love. And this is the act in which Judas uses to betray Jesus into the hands of those Jewish leaders and Roman soldiers. And so they're going to arrest Jesus. It says in verse 55 that they come, they arrest him. And in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now at the arrest of Jesus, you might recall that Peter tries to defend him. And Peter draws his sword and he slashes the ear off of the high priest's servant. And Jesus says, put your sword away. And he heals the man's ear. He says, that's not what this is about. And so they do arrest Jesus. And then this multitude begins to gather around and to see his arrest. And Jesus looks out and he sees faces of people that he sat in the temple with daily teaching. And he looks at them and you can hear the anguish and hurt and pain in his voice as he looks at them. And he goes, daily, every day I was there with you. We talked to scripture together. I taught you. And you didn't take me with a sword then, but you're out here now with swords and staves to arrest me. Almost as if to say, what have I done? And then what do we see? Not only the crowd that had betrayed him, the Jewish leaders that had betrayed him, this friend of three years that had betrayed him, but all the disciples forsook him and fled. I think sometimes reading through this story, we forget that. That all of them ran and left him. And here is Jesus, the son of God, in that garden, arrested by Roman soldiers, having done nothing wrong, and he is alone. Utterly and completely alone feeling that anguish and that heartache of what's about to come. In verse 57, it says, They that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus for to put him to death. They take him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the current high priest. John mentions that they also brought him to Annas. Annas was the former high priest. And it almost seems as if Caiaphas wanted to get Annas' blessing on what was about to take place. And it seems that he did. So with that approval, they take Jesus and they're going together some of what's called the Sanhedrin council. This was the ruling council of the Jewish religion. 
And they didn't bring the whole council in there. They just brought certain of the council that they knew, I believe, that they knew would be on their side in putting Jesus to death. Now, Peter is the one guy that is going to trail. He's going to follow along at a distance to try to see what happens to Jesus. But, of course, we remember the story with him that he is asked three different times throughout that, that next few hours whether he was a follower of Christ. And three different times he betrays Jesus and says, no, I don't know him. And then the rooster crows after that third time. And the scripture gives us that image of Jesus on the cross. And that rooster crows and Jesus looks at him. And imagine being Peter in that moment and locking eyes with the guy that you've just denied three times. And the scripture says that Peter goes and he weeps bitterly. Nevertheless, they've brought Jesus into this house and they've gathered the Sanhedrin. This was the first trial that Jesus is going to go through this night. This is the Jewish trial. And the Jews put up false witnesses against Jesus. One said that Jesus was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now Jesus had said those words, but he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. That his body would be put to death and three days later it would rise again. But they used this against him. And so the high priest begins to ask Jesus questions, but Jesus is silent and he won't answer. And in verse 63 of Matthew 26, it says, Jesus held his peace. And the high priest answered and said to him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus saith unto him, thou hast said. That's King James, for thou hast rightly said. That is Jesus saying, yes, what you have said is true. Nevertheless, Jesus says, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. What think ye? And they answered and said, He is guilty of death. So the high priest looks at him and says, I want an answer. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, Yes. And then he says, and one day you're going to see me coming in the clouds. One day you're going to see the power that I have, essentially. And that was enough for them. They considered that blasphemy and treason against God and the old law. And they said, he is worthy of death. In verse 67, then they did spit in his face and buffeted him. And others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is he that smote thee? And now that emotional agony and turmoil that Jesus has been feeling has turned into physical. And after they have declared him worthy of death, they begin to hit him, to strike him, and mock him. They either stood behind him or blindfolded him, and each one began to strike him and say, Hey, if you're really the Son of God, if you're really that Christ fellow, that Messiah, you should be able to tell us which one of us is hitting you. And over and over again, they did this to mock him and to hurt him. And Jesus just sat there, and he took it. He didn't strike back. He didn't yell at them. He didn't say, I'll have my vengeance. He just sat there in silence and he took it. In Matthew 27, verses 1 and 2, it says, When the morning was come, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now after this mock trial in the middle of the night with only certain members of the Sanhedrin in which they brought up false witnesses against him and then declared him worthy of death, they're now going to bring him to Pilate because they need Rome to sign off on this crucifixion. And so they bring him to the Roman governor, the prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. 
Pilate realizes immediately that Jesus is from Galilee, and so he decides to wash his hands of it at this moment, and he sends him to a man named Herod. Herod was the tetrarch, or the leader that was put over the region of Galilee by the Romans. And so he sends him to Herod, hoping that Herod will deal with Jesus. Well, Herod had wanted to meet Jesus for some time, because he had heard about all of the miracles and things that Jesus had done. And so he wanted Jesus, essentially, to come into his court and perform some magic tricks for him. That's what he wanted. And so he gets Jesus over there, but Jesus won't perform any miracles. He's frustrated. He puts a robe on him. They mock him. And then Herod just sends him right back to Pilate. And so Pilate will begin his examination of Jesus. And we go to John chapter 18, verse 33. It says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said to him, Art thou the king of the Jews? So he gets right to the point. He says, Are you the king of the Jews? Now this is a simple question, but it's an important question for Rome. Here's why Rome would care. Because if the Jews who are under Roman rule at this time have a new king that is rising up and is gathering a following, that is a threat to Rome's power. And if the Jews are going to follow this man with an earthly kingdom who's going to seek to overthrow Rome or retake Israel, Rome wants to know. And it's important for them to know who this Jesus is. So Pilate looks at him and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered in verse 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, art thou a king then? And Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king. Again, that's King James. For Jesus saying, you say rightly that I am a king. Yes, I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? Jesus says, yes, I am a king, but not in the way that you think. Jesus knew Pilate's motivation for the question. He knew that Pilate wanted to know if Jesus was going to be a threat to Rome. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to be a threat to you. My kingdom's not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. If my kingdom were of this world, I wouldn't have told Peter to sheathe his sword. I would have told my disciples to get their swords out. He says, that's not what I'm about. My kingdom's different. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not a worldly or physical kingdom. It's not going to have geographic boundaries. We're not going to try to overtake Rome. All of that is in this conversation, essentially, as you read between the lines, as Jesus gives his answer. He says, I'm a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom. And so Pilate has heard enough, and he approaches the crowd to deliver his decision. In Luke 23, 13, Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, said unto them, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverteth the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. No, nor yet Herod, for I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done to him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. Pilate believes that this man, Jesus, who he has questioned, is not a threat to Rome. He is not guilty of the charges that the Jews have levied against him. And he says, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to chastise him. I'm going to beat him a little bit for you. I'm going to make him feel some pain for you, but I'm going to let him go because he hasn't done anything worthy of death. And it's interesting to me that this Roman governor who probably could have cared less about Jesus or his teaching or anything like that in that conversation recognizes the innocence and the righteousness of this man who was not just a man, but was God made flesh. But as he tells this to the Jews, listen to their response. And they cried out all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release unto us Barabbas, who for a certain sedition made in the city and for murder was cast into prison. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them, 
But they cried saying, crucify him, crucify him. Now it was the custom at this time for the Romans to release a prisoner. And they had a man named Barabbas in prison at this point. Barabbas was a, was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a dangerous man to have around. And Pilate essentially said, look, would you rather me release Barabbas, this murderer into your midst, or this man Jesus who has done nothing worthy of death? And they said, we want Barabbas. We want Jesus to die. Crucify him, crucify him. Such was their hate and their threat, their jealousy, and their level of being threatened by Jesus and who he was. In verse 22, it says, he said unto them the third time, why? What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. And they were instant with loud voices, requiring that he might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed. A third time, Pilate looks out at this crowd and says, he's done nothing worthy of death. I'm gonna beat him and I'm gonna let him go. But the crowds cried, crucify him, crucify him. Over and over and over and eventually Pilate gives in to the mob. In Matthew 27 and verse 26, it says, then released he Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, just before this point, you may remember Pilate brings a basin of water out in front of him. And he washes his hands in front of all of the people. And he says, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. Now that was perhaps an attempt to cleanse his own conscience. I don't know if it worked or not. I don't know if that made him guiltless in this, but that was at least his attempt to cleanse his own conscience and say, this man's death is on you and not me, but take him and crucify him if you want. The Jews responded to that statement with his blood be upon us and on our children. And that's how much they wanted Jesus dead. So Pilate delivered him to them. In Matthew 27, 28, it says they stripped him and they put on him a scarlet robe and when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote his head, or smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. So Jesus at this point, who has had a night of emotional and mental agony and anguish where he is profusely sweating, potentially sweating drops of blood. And he has been arrested and betrayed by his friend, deserted by all the rest of his disciples, dragged to a sham Jewish trial in the middle of the night where he was determined to be guilty and worthy of death, then taken to Pilate, then sent to Herod, then back to Pilate, who found him innocent, but the Jews still cried out, crucify him. So now he's been delivered to be crucified, and now he is being beaten. He is being whipped. He is being torn apart physically before ever even reaching the cross or the point at which he's going to give his life. You know, we talk about that crown of thorns that they place on Jesus' head. They did not gently place it on his head as they would a true king. They pounded that crown of thorns into his skull. And so Jesus now has blood coming from just about every part of his body that you could imagine, including his head as those thorns have dug deep into his scalp. And they put that robe on him and they mock him and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. What a king. In John 19 and verse 17 it says, And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two other with him, one or on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. 
Now, Jesus, in this state of physical agony where his flesh has been ripped apart, he has been beaten, he is bleeding profusely, he has this wooden cross placed upon his shoulders and he is told to march towards this hill where the crucifixion is going to take place, carrying that cross the distance from the city to Golgotha. And when Jesus no longer had the physical strength to carry it, the Romans caused a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross for Jesus the rest of the way. Now I want you to get this image in your mind because most likely what I've determined from looking into these things is this is most likely how they would have done this. They would have laid that cross down on the ground and they would have had a hole dug in front of the foot of that cross. And they would have laid Jesus down back first onto that cross. And they would have taken nails, very, very long, large, thick nails. And they would have placed those most likely in his wrists and then in his feet. And they would have pounded those nails through his flesh, ripping those muscles as it tore through him into the wooden cross behind him, through his hands and through his feet. And then after he was nailed to that cross, they would have lifted that cross up onto the ground and then allowed the foot of that cross to drop into the hole to hold that cross upright. And I can only imagine the agony that that in and of itself caused Jesus as his body was jarred as that cross hit the floor of that hole. And he's hanging there by these nails on that cross. In Luke 23, 34, it says, Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus says this in response to looking at these very soldiers who put those nails through his hands and his feet. These Jewish leaders who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. The disciples that forsook him. Everyone that's there that's watching this take place and he looks down upon this scene and he prays this prayer to the Father and he says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That, again, is contrary to human nature. I can't imagine being in that position and looking down at the people that have caused me that type of agony and praying a prayer of mercy for them. But that's what Jesus did. Because he wasn't just a man. He was the Savior, the Son of, the, the Son of God. In Luke 23, 39, it says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. Jesus has been betrayed, he has been humiliated, he has been tortured, and now even one of the criminals beside him is mocking him and torturing him, tormenting him. But the thief on the other side recognized that Jesus was a just man, an innocent man, and a righteous man. And he looks at that other thief and he says, what are you doing? We're dying because we deserve it. This man's done nothing. And then you look at verse 42, and this thief says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, verily I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. This thief, I don't know how much knowledge he had about Jesus, but he had enough knowledge about him to know that Jesus had a kingdom and he wanted to be a part of it. That Jesus was an innocent party, a just man. And so he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now I want to ask this question since we're at this part of the story. You know, we talk about this sometimes and folks say, we know the New Testament teaching 
regarding obedience to the gospel through baptism and having our sins washed away in that act. And they ask this question and say, well, how is the thief on the cross saved in this situation if he's not been baptized? And I just want to cover this very quickly and give you three answers that I think are worthy of consideration. One, we don't know that this man wasn't baptized. John the Baptist had been baptizing for years at this point, and it's very possible that he was. Secondly, the new covenant came into effect at Jesus' death, and Jesus hadn't died yet. So this is still old law time frame, not new law time frame. But most importantly, I want you to remember this is Jesus, the Son of God. And as he walked here on earth, he forgave many people of their sins when he deemed them worthy through their faith and obedience to him. And it's no different in this situation. He looks at this man and he sees his faith and he says, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. And he's Jesus and he has the right to do that and to save whoever he chooses. It doesn't change the truth and the instruction for us. In John 19, verse 26, something else amazing happens here at this time. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. And then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her unto his own home. You know, this one gets me a little bit because Jesus is bearing the weight of the world on his shoulders. He is carrying the sins of all of mankind, becoming that lamb, that sacrifice to rid sin from the world. And yet he looks down from his cross and he sees his mom and he cares about his mom. And he looks at John, John who had forsook him and fled, but is now at the cross and he's back. And Jesus looks at John and he basically is saying, John, take care of my mom. And he looks at his mom and he says, mom, John's going to take care of you. It's going to be okay. And it's amazing to me that with everything else that he's dealing with and that's going through his mind, that he cares that much about his mother to make sure that she's being taken care of. In Matthew 27, 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this darkness took place from about 12 noon to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's strange. How often does it get dark from 12 to 3 in the afternoon? This was a sign that something very important and special was happening. Visit with me after services if you'd like about this. But what's fascinating to me is there are multiple secular historical records that talk about this darkness taking place. This is not just some fanciful story the Bible's telling. This happened. And this darkness takes place, and I believe ultimately it was the reaction of the creation to the death of its creator. But why did Jesus cry out this statement, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I think there's two reasons. One, I think he's human, and he's feeling that pain and that anguish, and he's carrying the sin of the world. And so there's not a communion, there's not a fellowship in that moment with God. But at the same time, I think that there was a deeper purpose. In Psalm 22 and verse 1 this psalm starts out with these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Psalm 22, if you're unfamiliar, is a prophecy of the suffering Savior, the Messiah, who would give his life. And go read through Psalm 22 sometime with the knowledge of Jesus and the crucifixion, and you'll see it all there. And that psalm starts with those words. And so as Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Every educated Jew, every person that was knowledgeable in the old law would have immediately connected those words with Psalm 22 and the prophecy of the Savior that would give his life for the world. 
And that's what they were seeing and that's what they were witnessing. And maybe perhaps by the time Acts chapter 2 comes around, some of these Jews that connected those dots would be ready to repent and to change. In John 19, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it in his mouth. And when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. These three words, it is finished, symbolize everything that Jesus was sent here to this earth to do. His mission was accomplished. He had become the sacrificial lamb of God. He had become the savior, the Messiah. He had done it. He had paid the price for your sin and for mine. Matthew 27 verse 51 says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were open, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, there's a lot of amazing things that are going to happen over the next three days to signify that this person that has just been put to death was truly the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. One of those is that the veil of the temple was was split in two. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, in the Jewish temple, there was a place called the Holy Place, and then the Holiest of Holies, the Most Holy Place. And it was separated by this veil. In that Most Holy Place, that was where the presence of God dwelt. And only once a year did the high priest ever enter in, and he's the only one that was allowed to enter into that place to make sacrifice for the people. And that veil separated and signified the the separation between God and mankind. And now this veil that was not just a sheet, by the way, this veil was likely four inches thick and 60 feet tall, and it ripped from top to bottom. Now, how does that happen? It happens almost as if a big, gigantic force took it from the top and went... And that's essentially what happened because God tore that veil down signifying something pretty powerful that no longer are we separated from the atonement. But now Jesus has become that bridge. He has become that lamb. He has become that sacrifice to take away the sins of the world and we now have the opportunity to have a relationship with God that we didn't have before. That's what Jesus has done for you and I. And along with that, the veil of the temple ripping, we see further proofs of who Jesus was in that darkness, in the earthquakes, in rocks splitting apart, graves opening up, and dead people rising from the grave and witnessing to live people. Can you imagine seeing those things and not believing in who Jesus was? Matthew 27 and verse 54 it says, now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things which were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. And if that centurion, that Roman soldier who was responsible for seeing Jesus crucified and those nails being placed in his hands and his feet can witness all of that and say, we've made a mistake. This was the Son of God. What's stopping you from believing What's stopping you from Jesus being your Lord and Savior? You know why Jesus did all of that? Because he wanted to take away the sins of the world. And that includes you. 1 John 2 verse 2 says, He is the propitiation or the substitution for our sins, the payment for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know, one of the greatest blessings about Jesus Christ is that his sacrifice was not restricted to the Jews. 
His sacrifice was not restricted to a small set of people that no one else had access to. Jesus' sacrifice was for you and for me and every other person outside of these four walls, every person across the face of the globe. If we'll look to him as Lord and Savior, if we'll obey him, if we'll look to him in faith and obedience, he will be that Savior for us. We can be a part of his kingdom just like that thief on the cross. He promised you'll be with me in paradise. That same promise can be true for you and it can be true for me if we'll accept him. As we conclude this evening, I want to let you know, though, that that's not the end of the story. That three days later, Jesus rises from the grave with new life. In Matthew 27, 64 through 66, the Jews have gone to Pilate, and they're worried about the disciples stealing the body of Jesus and pretending that he is going to be resurrected. And so they say, command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, ye have your watch. Go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and, and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now what the Romans would essentially do in this scenario where they were sealing something was they would put the Roman seal upon whatever that was, in this case, the gravestone. And they put that Roman seal on, and what that meant was if that seal was broken, you were in trouble with the Roman government. But not only that, but they had four soldiers, Roman soldiers, And I forget if it's eight hours or 12 hours, but every once in a while they'd trade them out to make sure that they didn't get sleepy and sleep on the job. And they had four soldiers there constantly watching, paying attention. And yet somehow Jesus rises from the grave. In Matthew 28, verse 1, it says, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulcher. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the woman, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Those four Roman soldiers that were there guarding the tomb to make sure that no funny business happened, they saw an angel come down and an earthquake happen and they became his dead men. I don't know if they played possum to avoid death or they fainted or they literally died, but they were no threat to that angel that came and rolled that stone away and broke that Roman seal. And Jesus came forth from that grave. And over the next 40 days, Jesus is going to teach his disciples about that kingdom that he had established and get them ready to start spreading his gospel. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he came to them and he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And I want you to know that Jesus is reigning today. He is Lord of heaven and earth today. He is king of an eternal kingdom today. He was that savior and sacrificed that day so that you and I could have our sins washed away and be part of something eternal, something that will last beyond this mere physical life and this physical world. And I believe that one day Jesus is coming back and he's gonna claim his own. He's gonna claim those that have obeyed him, that are a part of his kingdom, and he's gonna bring us back with him to that heavenly home to live forever. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17 tells us this. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. I want you to know this evening that that promise is true for you. And if you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to ask you why. What's stopping you? Why are you waiting? 
Think about all the things that we've looked at from the scripture tonight that Jesus went through, that he suffered mentally, emotionally, physically, all to provide a way for you and for me to be a part of his kingdom and have our sins washed away. I wanna be there on that day with anticipation and with joy when Jesus comes in the clouds and we hear those trumpet sounds. I don't wanna be there with fear and with dread knowing that I've not accepted him as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.